can't replicate a human's touch in some fields. So the jobs that are going to last, the ones, those are the ones we need the critical thinking. We need the teamwork. We need decision-making ability, all those kinds of things that give it that human touch. So soft skills are really being rewarded in the labor market. The people who have those soft skills later become managers and leaders within those organizations. So they kind of have a longer term trajectory than maybe very short term technical skills in some cases. The workforce landscape is rapidly changing and educators and their institutions need to keep up. Preparing students before they enter the workforce to make our communities and businesses stronger is at the core of getting an education. But we need to understand how to change and adjust so that we can begin to project where things are headed before we even get there. So how do we begin to predict the future? Hi, I'm Salvatrice Kumo, Executive Director of Economic and Workforce Development at Pasadena City College and host of this podcast. And I'm Christina Barsi, producer and co-host of this podcast. And we are starting the conversation about the future of work. We'll explore topics like how education can partner with industry, how to be more equitable, and how to attain one of our highest goals, more internships and PCC students in the workforce. We at Pasadena City College want to lead the charge in closing the gap between what our students are learning and what the demands of the workforce will be once they enter. This is a conversation that impacts all of us, you the employers, the policymakers, the educational institutions, and the community as a whole. We believe change happens when we work together, and it all starts with having a conversation. I'm Christina Barsi. And I'm Salvatrice Kumo, and this is The Future of Work. In this episode, our host, Salvatrice Kumo, sits down with Dr. Stephanie Cellini, professor at the George Washington University, to compare and contrast the advantages and disadvantages between attending a private university or a community college. Dr. Cellini's work is comprised of using data to make these type of comparisons, and you may be surprised by some of the points made regarding both. Enjoy. Welcome back, listeners. This is Salvatrice with the Future of Work podcast presented by Pasadena City College Economic Workforce Development. We are here today with Dr. Stephanie Cellini, professor at the George Washington University. Welcome, Dr. Cellini. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. We couldn't thank you enough for joining us here at our podcast and, you know, sharing your perspective on the world right now. And so, Why don't we go ahead and get started, if that's okay with you. I would be delighted to have the listeners know a little bit more about who you are as Dr. Cellini and what led you here. What journey led you to becoming a professor at the George Washington University? What interest did you have that led you here? Yeah, thanks. I'd be happy to tell you more. So I did my undergraduate work in California. I'm from California, and I was really interested in public policy and hadn't done a lot of it. I majored in public policy when I realized that my college had that major. And I took some economics classes. And and to be honest, I didn't really like them at first. Uh, but you yeah, and every other college yeah, student, right? I know, I know. <laughs> not my favorite. I did not imagine ever that I would become an economist. Um, but I took a job at the Urban Institute after I graduated. And I was a research assistant. Um, and I worked with a number of professors and, and kind of researchers in this think tank working on issues of education and training. And I found it really interesting and everyone suggested, hey, go back and if you like to do research, get a PhD in economics. So I went back and did that. (laughs) It's like that Uh, easy, right? Like, oh, just go get a PhD. 
Yeah, go get a PhD. <laughs> if you enjoy doing research, this might be a career path you want to do. And I kind of realized that I enjoyed working with numbers more than I thought I did previously in my undergrad career. So I decided to take on this econ route. And one night watching TV as a graduate student, I saw an advertisement for a for-profit college. Hmm. And it said, get your dental assisting certification in just six weeks. You know, it, it made these big promises. And I started to wonder, you know, I knew a lot about community colleges at that point, but I didn't know much about these private providers of higher education hmm. that were providing vocational training to people in my community. And I thought, have, has anyone looked at that? And I wonder if this could all be true. So mm-hmm. starting in graduate school, I started researching mostly for-profit colleges and along with that, how they really compare to community colleges. And that's what my research is still on. I also enjoy my teaching as well in the School of Public Policy over at GW. But I kind of have those two parts to my to my job and I, I really enjoy them both. Well, that's That actually leads perfectly into my first question. You gave an overview of your interest in your research. Would you like to take a moment and share your research thus far, a a glimpse of it or an overview of it? Sure, absolutely. So a lot of what I do is use large data sets, often administrative data sets or government data sets, to look at patterns. And the patterns I look at are about student attendance, like which types of students go to which types of colleges, and student outcomes. So one of my more recent studies is looking at community college students and for-profit college students. And we match these students with similar demographic characteristics and similar earnings before they attend. And we look at their outcomes after they attend. And we look at students in similar programs like dental assisting programs or others. And we compare students who are similar on demographics and we look at their earnings before and after they attend. And I compare the kind of before and after earnings gains that students make in the for-profits with the before and after earnings gains of students in community colleges. And I do this for, you know, 700,000 students. So we can really observe patterns in the data and kind of see, in fact, in that study, we saw that community college students on average earned about $2,000 more than the average for-profit college student in a similar program. Uh, They also took on less debt. Mm-hmm. And then I've been trying to use those kinds of studies and a number of other studies looking at the impacts of various policies and programs to then make some policy recommendations out of that. You know, I would have, um, the majority I think of the community assumes that sometimes when you go to these for-profit colleges that you will be making more money, but we often forget to your point about the debt that's associated with it. You know, I I took a moment to, to re, you know, review some of your research and I found it really fascinating and completely appropriate while I'm in my doctoral program. And so, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so and it was really, it was really awesome. These programs, yeah, mm-hmm, are no, really please. quite expensive. These for-profit. They are. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems as though what we found is that according to the Brookings Institute, that student debt is at about $1.5 trillion right now. That's right. So having... Having said that, so I want to go two ways here. Where I first would like to go is based on that research and knowing that what emphasis your work is placing around community college system in the U.S. and kind of comparing the for-profits and community colleges, the first area I want to go into is, you know, what ways can community colleges impact and serve the local economies where they are? And then the flip side of that, and then we'll kind of go into that debt problem that we have and, you know, in conjunction with businesses struggling. So 
if you don't mind, you know, what do you think are some ways that community colleges can impact and serve the local economies where they are? Yeah, so I think, you know, the the best thing community colleges do is they provide education and training to the community. And the costs of a community college are quite low for students compared to other options. And the benefits are really high. So this also means it's one of the best investments for government and taxpayers as well, because you get these huge benefits back from having students in your local community who are more educated. So for example, you know, not only are students building their own human capital and increasing their own earnings, but when they have higher productivity and earnings, they then contribute more in taxes, they reduce their reliance on social safety net programs, and they actually increase the productivity of those around them, the people they're working with. So we see that teams can be more productive when people have more education. We've also seen in the economics literature, we've seen reductions in crime, better health, even better marriage rates when people go to community colleges or or any college, really. And that this kind of public higher education is really an investment that pays off for individuals and also for society at large. So we really need to make sure that, you know, states and local economies continue to invest in community colleges so that they can continue to get those benefits back. So... One of the best things about community colleges is that students take on relatively little debt to attend because tuition tends to be lower than other types of colleges. I believe the numbers are, you know, about 25% of students in community colleges borrow to attend versus about 75% of students in for-profits. But what really matters is how well they repay that debt. And in fact, community college students pay back their debt a lot more successfully than for-profit students, for example. And It's not actually the borrowing that's the problem so much. In my opinion, it's more the repayment. So we really need to make sure that students are gaining the earnings that they need to be able to repay their debt. And that seems to be true at community colleges, but at for-profit colleges, for example, there's some research that finds that nearly half of students default on their debt within 12 years of leaving a for-profit college. So, you know, if you have small earnings gains and large debt, it is obviously um, a big problem. Yes, absolutely. And I and I think now is a little bit more challenging. We are seeing, I think the last time I read, and I can't remember where I read it, but we are projected to have 44 million unemployed individuals in this country by the end of the year, in fact. And, and that number may increase or it may not. You know, that accompanied with businesses struggling, the declining employment opportunities, the debt, the need to increase the labor pool. How do we address that? How do we address this increasing labor pool that we so desperately need? Because there are jobs out there, certainly. But yet we also are in this perfect storm of we do need increased labor pool, but we also have a declining employment rate. And, you know, to add a little bit of sprinkle to all of it is that we do have rising debt. So what would be your you know, thought process around, like, how do we address this in the most appropriate way? Whether it's us as a system, how do we address it? Or how can perhaps maybe in a community college address this perfect storm that we're sitting in? I wish I had the answer to that. <laughs> um, <laughs> For sure. I wish I could solve all the, I wish I could solve that. But just some thoughts and some ideas here. You know, we do know that education and training is just vitally important in being able to weather these types of recessions. I think, you know, the current unemployment rates for people with bachelor's degrees is much lower. I think it's about half of what it is for people who don't have any college education. 
So I think we're talking about the latest numbers off the top of my head were like maybe 5% for people with bachelor's degrees, but about 10% for those without a college education. So we know that kind of getting to that point of that bachelor's degree can be very helpful. And I think community colleges can play a really big role in serving as, you know, those tra that transfer function, helping students move from their associate's degree to a bachelor's degree, helping more students do that, because we know that that bachelor's degree can help people hang on to a job during an economic downturn. It gives them a competitive edge in some sense that can help them weather those storms. Let's see, other thoughts. Other thinking through thinking through the connection between the economy and education, we also want to be thinking about community college systems being flexible enough to adapt to changing needs of employers. So for example, working with industry, working with advisory boards that can help add programs when they're needed, you know, to change curriculum when it's needed, to make sure that students are getting, you know, the cutting edge skills we need or the types of programs that might be in high demand. Things like healthcare are bound to be in demand, information technology, you know, there's certain fields and areas where I think community colleges could really expand their offerings, make sure there's enough seats. And of course, we need to fund our community colleges to make sure that they have enough seats and can take on new programs and offer spots to individuals who might need retraining in this economy. Yeah. Would you agree also, too, that there's a need or demand for upskilling the existing workforce? Because although there might be businesses, businesses had to pivot very, very quickly, literally probably in 24 to 48 hours in order to adapt to this pandemic. And many of the industries, specifically service industries, where they had to retrain their employees to adapt to the change, to adapt to the new, the new normal as it is right now. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there's, in addition to what you're saying, I think that there's also an emphasis on as community colleges, we could be of service greater to our business community if we would really take the time and, and understanding the business's perspective on reskilling and retooling their existing employees. Because that speaks to a lot. That speaks to retention. That speaks to lower cost and trainings. That speaks to many different things as it relates to the business model. All that to say that I echo precisely what you're saying layered with a need to focus on re reaching out to the community and working with the community to reskill the existing employees and get folks back to work. Because what we're seeing right now are adults having to retrain, go into different career paths altogether in order to capture an opportunity. So we're having not only folks retrain and retool from their existing experiences, or their ex existing expertise, but there is a massive surge of adults, of adult learners who are shifting careers in order to survive and meet the current occupational demands. Well, with that comes pros and cons to that. Does that worry you in any way as far as the students being taken advantage of, or do you feel that it, it really isn't an issue, that for-profits have always kind of had this market and they're going to continue to have this market, regardless of whether there's a pandemic or not, or the surge for online education. Yeah, great question. And yes, I would say I'm very worried about a surge in for-profit colleges during this pandemic. So I do think they're well positioned because many of them didn't have campuses already. They were already in this kind of online learning space. They were already advertising a lot. And I've written about advertising across sectors in some of my research as well. 
you know, for-profits spend about $400 per student on advertising compared to about $14 per student in the public sector. Yes. So yeah, it's incredible. <laughs> so, and you see their ads. This is again, what sparked my interest in these institutions in the first place. And it's really hard to judge the quality of these institutions on your own or from these commercials. So it's hard for anyone to judge the college, the quality of any college, but it's particularly tough when, you know, some of them, as you may have read in the news and things have been, you know, accused of false advertising and making misrepresentations. So that can be particularly challenging to navigate for students. And right now, there have been reports of more advertising by these for-profits during the pandemic and more enrollments going up already. And in fact, we saw enrollments go up in the last recession as well. And that was a time when regulations were quite lax around the for-profit college sector. And right now, we again have kind of lax regulations again. The Trump administration has rolled back several regulations that protected students against colleges that were trying to take advantage of them or misrepresent things or give them low quality education. So we're at a time where these colleges are really poised to make a comeback. And as students are looking around, you know, it's really difficult to navigate the whole higher education landscape without the kind of full information you need to make a good decision. So what would you say then to the student that's listening? How do they make that decision? You know, what questions should they be asking? You know, and maybe even what red flags should they be aware of? Yeah. When making a choice. Absolutely. So the first place I would go is to the college scorecard, which was an Obama administration website created to start tracking some of the outcomes of students at different colleges around the country. And there's been some changes to it, but they have things like earnings after 10 years that students can expect and the average debt of students and completion rates and the percentage of students that default on loans. And one of my favorite interesting statistics that they put up there is the percentage of students that are earning more than they would if they just attended high school. So I think they can be, and they're, they're kind of somewhat user-friendly, at least the way they present these statistics. So there is information out there on you know trusted government websites but I will say it's still difficult even to navigate those. It's, it's not easy. And right. it's, it, it's hard to find that information and to know there's so many webs. There's almost too much information in some ways and then not enough at the same time. So I guess my point would be don't necessarily trust recruiters that call you on the phone or email you or get in touch with you when you respond to an ad. Do the research on your own about their student outcomes, about debt, default, earnings, employment, you name it, yep. completion rates to know if the school is really getting students the jobs that it's promising. I would also add, you know, what employers are they connected to? Mm -hmm. and what promises yeah. are they making? Sometimes yeah. shiny is not always better. Yeah. <laughs> and you just said it earlier, $400 per student to market yeah. versus $14. And so naturally, they're going to have a shinier product. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that for the, especially for the new students entering into higher education. Now, what about graduates? Let's shift gears a little bit. Graduates now post pandemic. Okay. Now we're going to look into the future. We're going to get a crystal ball and look into it a little bit, but it's really hard to tell. It really is. But for the graduates that are looking, that are, that are job seekers post the pandemic, what advice should we give as to skills that they should really be honing into while they're developing their careers post-graduation yeah. and post-pandemic? 
Yeah, well, I recently saw some great research by an economist, David Deming at Harvard, and he pointed out the need for soft skills in this economy and the value of soft skills. So communication, teamwork, critical thinking, probably critical right? thinking. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> but these kinds yeah. of soft skills that are not easily you can't replicate a human's touch in some fields. So the kind of personal communication and you know, the kind of human aspects of these jobs are the things, you know, we can automate and computerize all we want in many of these fields, but the jobs that are going to last, the ones, those are the ones we need the critical thinking, we need the teamwork, we need decision-making ability, all those kinds of things that give it that human touch. So soft skills are really being rewarded in the labor market and they're often rewarded, you know, they might not be as kind of quick to be rewarded in the labor market, but the people who have those soft skills later become managers and leaders within those organizations. So they kind of have a longer term trajectory than maybe very short term technical skills in some cases. That's right. And I would also think that there's something to be said about building the network, building your network of, of folks and participating and volunteering. And, you know, as you expand your network, you expand your opportunities for growth in my humble opinion, this is just my advice yeah. to add to yours is yeah. we've got to expand our network and, and be willing to be a little uncomfortable in exploring areas that we may not have thought of because we learn so much from them. And at any rate, yes, those soft skills are super important. And sometimes those soft skills are developed in putting ourselves into volunteer positions, into community outreach positions right. into networking events and, and things like that that help us hone in our skills because those skills are not taught. Educational systems or institutions, excuse me, we can't really teach that. That has to be kind of go out and get a ton of experience around it. Much like you served as a fellow. You served as a fellow yeah. with the U.S. House of Representatives, you know, the Committee on Education and Labor. Again, do you have to do that? Probably not, but you chose to do that for a variety of reasons, I bet, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. to expand your knowledge, understand the current pulse, you know, build your, your community, your network, your career network, professional community. I'm sure many different reasons, but since yeah. we're on the subject, I have to believe that your time there really kind of shaped how you're currently addressing some of the, your research and or it shaped your outlook on your perspective on things. So what would you say, having spent time there, you know, what did you find? Can you speak to the synergies that you found there between research and policy? Yeah, I really enjoyed my time as a fellow with the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Education and Labor in 2019. I really learned a lot while I was there. And I did push myself to do something I had never really done, which was really work in policy and not just in kind of a research capacity as I had done before. And it was really interesting. I learned a lot about how research can better inform policy. How can we as researchers, you know, really help policymakers with their job, which is to, you know, design and shape and, and draft really important policy that shapes higher education around the United States. And there really had been this disconnect, I think, when I entered, you know, I, I write these very kind of jargony journal articles. They're so dense and they're so full of equations and you kind of forget how to explain things to a general audience. And what are the key points that policymakers need to take away from this 
in order to move policy forward based on that research? And how do we make that connection and convey those kind of main points and results of all this research going on by all these economists, just like me sitting around in their ivory towers and <laughs> trying to put out these papers on various topics. And then if they never go to policymakers, we're never going to change anything. So I really, I really valued my time there. Not only did it shape the types of questions that I'm interested in asking now in my research, because I have a lot more really hands-on policy questions I can ask and dig into, but it also helped me figure out how to communicate the research I had already done to a policy audience so that it can create change. So for example, we worked on drafting a 1,000 plus page bill to potentially reauthorize the Higher Education Act of 1965. So mm. this was, it- It's it, a big lift. It was a big lift, but I learned so much and it's still not reauthorized. So, you know, maybe that will still happen down the road, but this was a big lift. And I learned so much across all these different policy areas, including, you know, thinking through the role of Pell Grants and how important those are, thinking through how do we incentivize states to support their community colleges and even give incentives for potentially free community college tuition? How do we think about holding for-profit colleges accountable and, you know, for the outcomes of their students? And so I was helping to work on those pieces of it. And I, and I really enjoyed it. It was taking research into practice. That was really great. So along the same thread of your findings around the research that you found during your time with the House the U.S. House of Representatives Committee on Education and Labor and how that positioned you to really inform policy, you mentioned the Pell Grants. And we know that studies have shown that college enrollment for prospective low-income students is expected to fall. What policies and support from local and national levels should we be implementing to ensure that these students can afford their opportunity to further their education with us? Yeah, great question. I do think Pell Grants are very important. I would recommend expanding them, particularly the maximum award. It hasn't been expanded for many years, and it's a, it's a shrinking share, in fact, of overall tuition. As tuition's been rising, the Pell Grant hasn't been keeping up. And it's a really great tool to help low-income students. I think the Pell Grant could also be expanded for more semesters for students. Maybe it could be used for shorter-term programs in community colleges. Kind of thinking about how do we get the Pell Grant and, and get grants to more students who need them is a really important tool that I think we can use policy-wise. I would also say that, again, need the federal government to help states and local communities support their community colleges, which can also help stop for-profit colleges from filling a void if there's not enough seats in local community colleges, keeping community colleges accessible to everyone and have enough opportunity for everybody to enroll who wants to, I think is going to be very important as well. In a perfect world, how would we, how would we as a system influence that, influence those ideas around what you just shared with expanding Pell Grants, the redesign of higher education policy what do you think that's really going to take? Is that going to take a community of folks just speaking louder? Is it going to take one or several elected officials in what, in, in what roles to make that change? In a perfect situation, how would we make those adjustments and those changes to policy to meet the issue that was proven or validated 
from your research or from research in general? Yeah, I would say call your congressperson, call your senator, you know, ask mm -hmm. for these types of supports like increasing Pell Grants. And we need our legislators and our executive branch to put into place policies that really work for students and protect students. Colleges have powerful lobbyists on the Hill and students don't. So I, I wish I, you know, had a background in political science and could tell you more about how <laughs> students could effectively mobilize to do more, to push for more student protections. There are some good organizations that are kind of mobilizing on behalf of students. There are legal defense groups. There are nonprofits looking out for student access and success, for example. So connecting with those organizations might be a good way to figure out how to mobilize and help this kind of effort to ensure that students can maintain access to high quality education. I do think that students sharing their stories matters, like in a lot of these yes. lawsuits and a lot of on the yep. Hill under the Obama administration, some of the regulations that were put in place to protect students from predatory colleges um, were put in place because students told their stories about being misled or defrauded. Many of those colleges are closed now. There were policies put in place so students could have their debt forgiven if they were defrauded by these institutions. Mm -hmm. Some of those protections have been rolled back. And I think it helps to hear from students who, you know, feel passionately that they were not given the quality of education that they were promised or students who need the support to finish their degree and got cut off of their Pell Grant after 12 semesters when really they just had two more to go. It takes those stories and they can be really powerful. So I would... I would say use your voice, tell your story, and vote. Good point. Very good point. And, and students are voicing now just in light of our situation with the pandemic and online instruction, and they're voicing their concerns and their thoughts around what we call the digital divide. You know, there's yeah. access to equipment, access to technology, access, access in general, and yeah. okay, now putting your professor hat on right here, <laughs> yeah, not, that, not that you ever took it off, but you know, we yeah. were talking so much about, you know, research and policy, but shifting gears a little bit to classroom, to the student, faculty members are listening. So faculty are listening to this podcast as well. So for the faculty member that's listening out there, what are you seeing as trends right now to address that digital divide from a educators perspective and then are you seeing anything that's working or not working really well in this remote environment for teaching yeah yeah good questions and I have been teaching remotely in this pandemic I'm learning a lot every day I will say I do know some of the research on online education many of my colleagues have studied online education I have a paper or two looking at it as well in the country of Colombia, actually. So not this context, but we routinely see that students who are online don't do quite as well on tests, on classes that they follow on after uh, they take an online course versus an in-person class. So we've routinely seen that online education tends to be harder on students or tends to not help them succeed as much as in person. And I think any faculty member who has made this switch from face-to-face -to, -face to online will probably see why and, and realize for themselves. But I do think that, you know, keeping students engaged is a really big problem in online learning. Looking at a Zoom screen is tough. It's tough for all of us. It's tough working with adult learners as I do with my master's students. We all have kids in the background. I have kids in the background. My students do. We all have distractions. We have others maybe 
parents we're taking care of, maybe our own health that we have to take care of. So there's been a lot of challenges. And I think connecting with our students is more important than ever and trying to connect over Zoom however we can. So although I used to kind of lecture and teach, I, I used to teach an online class that was almost fully lecture. And now I've set the lectures aside for students to kind of do on their own time and really engage with students during the class time we have in a more synchronous way, where many times we'll start with, this is an economics class. It's not, you know, it's not a discussion-based class, but I start with discussions about what's going on with them. I start with discussions. We share recipes. We talk about our plan to vote. We do a lot of different things Mm -hmm. to just create that student engagement and get them kind of brought in so that they don't feel like we're just staring at a screen, but like we're really connecting And I think I'm learning to do that as an educator. I'm learning to create that community. It's outside of my normal, what seemed so natural before class in a face-to-face environment needs some work and some attention. So I guess my advice would be to really try and connect with students and set aside that time to just to get to know them and to create a classroom community over Zoom, in addition to conveying material and helping them through things, work on problems and whatnot. But that engagement, I think, should be a priority in this virtual setting. I think all of us as faculty members should also be pursuing as much training as we can in these different technologies and different platforms. I think there's a lot out there that we can do to learn and grow. And and I'm looking at this as a big opportunity for learning and for growth for me. And anytime I can learn a new technology and switch to something new that might work better, I've taken that opportunity to try it because we need to give our students as much as we can and make this as as good of an experience as we can make it for them. And that requires us to do some learning and ensure that we can handle all the technology um, and have all the strategies we need to really create that community and that student engagement that we're looking for. That's a great, great point to kind of close off this episode. To your point, we have to take it upon ourselves to learn different modalities and different ways of teaching online and, and the different platforms and the use of the technology as well, so that our students can learn from us as well. But also we're meeting our students' needs on how they learn. And, uh, you know, while still fighting for, as educators, decreasing those barriers for students to receive the same quality education, while, you know, technology might be an issue, access to technology might be an issue. So we're, yeah. we're fighting two battles here at the same time. Given your experience, just in a short period of time, just kind of close this off. What has been one thing that you learned, like specifically in technology that you may want to share with the faculty member that's listening out there? Hey, you know, try this because it really worked for me. Oh, there's so many things. I learned to use a polling feature in one of my online platforms where I could take one of these immediate polls of students. So I sometimes use that, especially in a bigger classroom to say, Some of my questions can be almost unrelated to class, but help find common ground. So I asked students to tell me how many people or animals might possibly interrupt them during this class session. Zero, one or more, two, two to three, four or more. And nearly half my class had four or more (laughs) on there of people and animals who might interrupt them. And just honestly being real and having my kids walk down and say hello in the middle of class, I think has just taken the pressure off of others. Um, yes. And I feel like I'm trying to model that we can we can try our best. We're all doing our best here and That's we will right. have interruptions. And to me, it broke down just as the faculty member, you know, to be able to say, hey, excuse me for one second. They see my kid in the background and, you know, it, I think it just allows us all to take that break and us all to have those moments where we're not going to be perfect and it's it will be interrupted and that that's okay. 
and, and I think, you know, taking those informal polls and finding the commonality that that's really the situation we're all in right now. I think, again, I know the poll is just a little statistics, you know, my, my own little nerdiness showing through, but I think there's many ways that we can all show that that common experience we're having now of being in this crazy situation. Well, this particular experience for me has been wonderful. So thank you. <laughs> thank well, you so much. I really yes. enjoyed it. Yes. Thank you. We've learned so much. And where could our listener find some of your research or your findings? I have my own personal website. If you just Google me, it's, let's see, it's one of those Google pages or my Google Scholar page under Google Scholar. Mm -hmm. If you just type in my name, you'll see a number of publications there. I also write a lot for the Brookings Institution since I'm a non-resident senior fellow there. And there's a website there too, with lots of blogs and short pieces about my work. Thank you so much. Dr. Cellini, this has been wonderful. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're very, very busy, but it's been very helpful for our listener who is either a policymaker, an educator, a student, or a business, even a business owner who hears this episode and, and understands how can they be of influence to some of the policy changes that are so desperately needed based on the research findings. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I had a great time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the Future of Work podcast. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you can easily get new episodes every Tuesday. You can reach out to us by clicking on the website link below in the show notes to collaborate, partner, or just chat about all things Future of Work. We'd love to connect with you. All of us here at the Future of Work and Pasadena City College wish you safety and wellness.